3: Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping
2: the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
4: I am a Muslim. I am an American. And I've been serving my country for 22 years and counting. And I am appalled at what these animals are doing to my country while desecrating my religion.
5: His name is a national secret. His appearance, we have disguised. His true identity cannot be known because he is an undercover FBI operative who lives among the terrorists. It's part of what we do, though.
4: We pretend to be someone we loathe while hanging out with people we hate.
6: Nice to meet you. I'm Oprah.
7: Hi,
4: I'm Aaron. I know you are.
8: Oh,
6: hi, Aaron. Pelican Bay Prison is the most notorious state penitentiary in America. Known as a supermax, some prisoners are cut off from nearly all human contact. But what has been accepted prison practice is starting to change across America.
9: Your mind becomes diseased and you start to accept the abnormal as normal.
6: You must know that there are a lot of people who do not care that you're in isolation 5 years, 10 years, 24 years, because you've got it coming.
2: Bill Koch is a billionaire black sheep. After suing his famously conservative brothers, he went on a multi-million dollar spending spree, collecting museum quality art and a (inaudible) cellar full of the finest wine in the
7: world. This is a bottle of Chatellefine Rothschild, 1870.
2: At least, that's what the label says.
7: We had a materials expert Mm. analyze this, Mm. and he said the glue behind here is Elmer's glue. Oh, my God.
2: How much money did you spend tracking down who sold you those bottles?
7: I spent uh, over $35 million doing all that.
2: $35 million? Yes,
6: more. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Oprah Winfrey.
2: I'm Sharon Alfonsi.
5: I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight... On 60 Minutes. Tonight, an unprecedented interview with an undercover FBI operative who secretly lives and works among the terrorists of ISIS and Al Qaeda. His name is a national secret. But in 2012, Al Qaeda knew him as Tamer El Nouri. They thought he was a wealthy Arab American with seething anger at the United States. But in reality, he had dedicated himself to the war on terror the morning of 9-11.
4: I remember thinking, please, God, don't let this be a terrorist attack. Please, God. Uh, And that's how naive I was. That's how naive we all were at that time.
5: Tamer El Nouri, one of his many aliases, immigrated from Egypt as a child and was raised in New Jersey in a traditional Islamic home. We're not war with Islam. We're at war with radicals. I am a Muslim,
4: I am an American, and I've been serving my country for 22 years and counting. And I am appalled at what these animals are doing to my country while desecrating my religion.
5: Devoted to Islam and America, comfortable working alone amid killers, he was a rare find for the FBI's undercover counterterrorism group. It's called the National Security Covert
4: Operations Unit. And what did the guys in the unit call it <laughs> it's not the guys it's
5: me i jokingly refer to it as the dirty arabs group <laughs> the dirty arabs group yes. your bosses must have loved that <laughs> dark most humor of, is part enough, of the, the trade right in a new book american radical he writes about infiltrating terrorist groups at home and abroad he wrote the book he told us so that fellow americans could understand how the islam he knows is tortured by terrorists trying to justify mayhem. We disguised him and changed his voice so he could tell us about one of the biggest investigations of his career. The target was a 30-year-old Tunisian who was working toward a PhD at a Canadian university. It was in 2012 that routine surveillance of Shahab Esagayer's phone calls and travels gave Canadian intelligence and the FBI reasons to worry Shahab was talking
4: to some really bad folks overseas um he made two trips to iran and a handful of other intelligence gathering uh evidence that was presented to us that led us to believe that um we needed to figure out who
5: he was essa Geyer had a visa to attend an academic conference in the united states so the FBI wanted Tamar el-Nouri to dangle himself as bait just in case Gayer was recruiting for al-Qaeda. What did you do then? I crafted
4: my legend and made myself recruitable. I wanted him to choose me. I wanted him to go to bed that night, wondering what he could do to become my friend.
5: His legend or false biography was that of a wealthy Arab American real estate investor with a painful private grudge. How did you meet? We met on a flight from Houston to San Jose, California, not by accident. We met on a flight from Houston to San Jose, California. (laughs) That planned accidental meeting in June 2012 is called a bump, as in bumping into someone. They boarded as strangers. And fate did the rest.
4: People were in his seat. People were in my seat. It was a legitimate mix-up. And as I was talking to the flight attendant, um, he noticed that I had a long beard, that I looked Middle Eastern, and probably was a Muslim. So he poked his head over and he said, "But the kamarabi," which means, "Do you speak Arabic?" In Arabic, I said, Taban. An, alaykum wa barakatuh." And he looked at me and he said, "Wa alaykum assalam rahmatullah." I knew it. And then the conversation proceeded in Arabic. He, he then turned to the other flight attendant and said, "We must sit together." He insisted.
5: He chose me. The whole key to the thing is to make it their idea. That's correct. What is the process that you go through to get into one of these roles? It starts that morning that I'm traveling,
4: assuming I'm traveling covertly in alias. Uh, I take a shower and I put on, for this case, I put on Tamer's clothes. I put on Tamer's watch, his shoes. I drive Tamar's car, his wallet's in my pocket. Uh, his phone is on me. And I drive to the beach, and I sit at the beach, and I talk to myself out loud like a crazy person, reciting everything there is to know about Tamar El Nouri, his company, his family, his legend, over and over.
5: The FBI created a history for Tamar El Nouri, an online presence, an actual office for his investment company, where a receptionist answered the phone. There were ownership records, a home, fake IDs, and, critical to the legend, there was a false personal tragedy. El Nuri's fake background said that his mother had died of neglect in a U.S. hospital because of anti-Muslim discrimination. That lie completed the picture of a wealthy Arab-American who had a reason to hate. Shahab S. Aguirre thought that his new friend was made to order, which, of course... He was. For 10 months, the men drew close. Essegayer twisted the Quran to justify attacking the West. He admitted that his trips to Iran were for meetings with a senior Al Qaeda leader. Surveillance showed that Essegayer was checking Tamar El Nuri's backstory, and one night, in a basement in Toronto, El Nuri was grilled by Essegayer and three accomplices.
4: What do you do? How do you do it? Is it real? Is it commercial real estate? Is it residential? What do you do when you
5: fly here? What do you do here? It sounded um, like an interrogation. This interrogation was so sharp, El Nuri yeah. feared that his cover had been blown. He analyzed the room in case he had to escape. But the cop within you had figured out where the exit was and had decided what order he was going to shoot the people in the room in if it came to that. Oh, absolutely. At that point, uh,
4: As you get older and slower, you realize you always go for the young ones first.
5: (laughs) Which leads me to ask, in all seriousness, where does the courage come from? I can make the argument that
4: you're probably more in danger crossing the street here in New York City than I am when I'm embedded in an al-Qaeda cell. If my legend holds up, I'm worth so much more to them safe. They protect me more than they protect their own, because Tamar al-Murray means access to the
5: West. He passed the grilling and was enlisted in what al-Qaeda hoped would be its long-frustrated encore to 9-11. He was planning on
4: derailing a train from New York City to Toronto. How was he going to do that? Well, that changed multiple times. It was either uh, break up the tracks use explosives, when the bottom line was that train was getting derailed over a bridge that had as little water as possible to ensure the deaths of everyone on that train. Was this just some kind of pipe dream? No, that was his tasking from al-Qaeda.
5: The Via Rail train carries hundreds of passengers from New York to Toronto. In September 2012, Essegayer, El Nouri, and another man case, this bridge near Toronto, the scene of the planned attack. As a surveillance team watched overhead, El Nuri recorded Shahab Esagayer explaining how the disaster would unfold. It would seem that you have plenty to arrest Shahab on at this point. Why does the investigation keep going? Because Shahab revealed to me
4: that there was an American sleeper. He told me that there was an American version of him and that although he didn't know who he was, he was told by his trainers, al-Qaeda senior leadership, that they would put the
5: two of them together when the time was right. There was an al-Qaeda American agent inside the United States. That's what Shab believed, and I believed him. The possibility of an al-Qaeda agent in America took the investigation in a new direction. Tamar Nouri lured Essa Geyer to New York City in the hope of developing leads, Essegayer asked El Nouri to show him the sights, including Times Square. He didn't see
4: Times Square the way a foreigner would. He saw it as an opportunity to kill Americans.
5: An opportunity, Essegayer suggested, for a future New Year's Eve when more than 100,000 people would fill the streets. Multiple explosions
4: um that were timed about five to ten seconds apart as one went off he thought about where the crowd would then run to and that's where he wanted the next bomb to go off uh maximum carnage maximum casualties
5: he expected to get away with derailing the train so that he could go on to times square next exactly she had said that al-qaeda shifted gears
4: uh after 9 11 they lost some of their best minds um No more martyrdom. They didn't want to lose soldiers anymore, people with access to the West. So you do what you can, get out, hide, and do it again.
5: After his visit to Times Square, Essegayer wanted to see where the Twin Towers had fallen.
4: And as he was rubbing his beard and his arm was around me, he said, Tamar, this place needs another 9-11, and we're going to give it to him. I saw red at that moment. It was the hardest time in my career to stay professional. Here I am on hallowed ground, and he said that to me. At that very moment, I could feel a pen in the pocket of my jacket. I envisioned stabbing him in the eye and dropping him dead right where
5: he stood. You very nearly blew your cover.
4: Yes, well... It's uh, it's part of what we do, though. We pretend to be someone we loathe while hanging out with people we hate. Maybe it was the culmination of everything that was happening, the stress and pressure of identifying the sleeper, uh, Shehab's rants about the West, uh, whatever. But the point was uh, I almost broke that night, but thankfully I, for the case, I didn't.
5: The FBI wanted more time, but in April 2013, the Boston Marathon was attacked. And one week later, the Canadian government insisted on wrapping up its al-Qaeda cell. Shahab Esagayer and the accomplice on the bridge were tried, convicted, and sentenced to life. But the trail to the American sleeper, if he existed, went cold.
4: There hasn't been a day since April 22nd, 2013, when I've woken up, no matter where I am, uh, that I don't think about the American sleeper.
5: Tamar Nouri's book, American Radical, was cleared for publication after an FBI review. The Bureau is keeping him out of action for a while to make sure that his identity isn't uncovered after the book and our interview.
6: California's Pelican Bay prison is the most notorious state penitentiary in America. Designed and built as a supermax facility, it's been used for nearly 30 years to lock away inmates considered the most dangerous. Pelican Bay's security housing unit known as the SHU is solitary confinement by another name, and inmates and their advocates have long denounced it as state-sanctioned torture. The people who run California's prisons defended their approach for decades. But now, they are at the center of a reform movement that is dramatically reducing the use of solitary confinement across the country and at Pelican Bay. Hi there. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Oprah. Hi, I'm Aaron. I know who you are. Oh, hi, Aaron. On the other side of that steel mesh, inmate Aaron Franklin is serving part of his 50 years to life sentence. What did you get 50 years to life for? For uh, murder. Murder. Yeah. It was the murder of a fellow gang member in San Diego. But crimes you commit on the outside don't get you sent to the Pelican Bay Shoe. It is reserved for offenses committed once you're in prison. Why were you brought here? Can you tell me?
1: Uh, just a little misunderstanding on the yard.
6: That little misunderstanding was an attack on another inmate with a weapon, and it earned him a year in solitary confinement. Franklin is in what's known as a shoe pod, eight tiny cells, four up and four down, all facing the same blank wall across the way.
9: It was created to break me mentally, physically, and spiritually.
6: Danny Murillo, Troy Williams, and Steve Sifra all went to prison as teenagers. They were sent to the Pelican Bay shoe for what happened after they were behind bars. Steve spit on a prison guard, Troy was part of a riot at another facility, and Danny was accused of being in a prison gang. Do you remember the first day you pulled up to the Shoe, taking that long bus ride, getting off the bus, mm-hmm. and seeing the place? It's a big white building with a small little door. My imagination was a human slaughterhouse. People just going into a human slaughterhouse. What did you think, Steve?
3: It was a modern-day dungeon. There was,
6: I had never seen anything like it. The message is, you're not getting out of here. The message is, you're, you're screwed. All three ultimately did get out of the shoe, and out of prison. I think the feeling on the part of a lot of folks is that you committed a crime, regardless of what age you were, exactly. you got locked up, you deserved to be there. Can you tell me why we should care?
1: We are, most of us, going to be getting out. And it would behoove the public to begin to facilitate a healing, you know? And the healing can start with, you know, a basic uh, dignity in how we're
8: treated.
6: Here inside the Pelican Bay Shoe, an inmate would spend up to 22 and a half hours a day in this cell, which is basically the size of a small parking space. It's like a windowless box with a sink and a toilet. Not just four days at a time, sometimes years and even decades at a time in this room alone. Most days, the only time a prisoner leaves his cell is to go to the yard, a slightly less tiny concrete box at the end of the pod for 90 minutes of exercise. So this is it. This is the yard. This is the extent of the yard? This yes, this is uh, it. Yeah, okay. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it a yard. We visited the yard with Scott Kernan, who runs the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So it would just be the inmate alone out here? Correct. On the rare occasions that an inmate leaves his pod, he first has to strip, push his clothes through a slot to be searched, then put his hands through the same slot to be cuffed. This is the only time a Shoe prisoner is ever touched by another human being.
5: They do hard time here in the Shoe. Time here is like hard time in no other prison.
6: When Mike Wallace visited Pelican Bay for 60 Minutes in 1993, prisons across the country had embraced solitary confinement as a tool to combat violence inside their walls. There was a building boom in Supermax facilities, and Pelican Bay was a model. The
5: state of California that runs it proudly proclaims it's the wave of the future, designed to isolate prisoners who they insist are out of control, too violent, too unpredictable to be housed with the -the run-of-the-mill murderers and rapists.
6: At its peak in the 90s, Correction Secretary Scott Kernan says Pelican Bay's shoe held almost 2,000 prisoners.
1: During that period of time, um, I witnessed multiple murders, multiple stabbings, lives changed irreparably.
6: Inmates stabbing each other, stabbing corrections officers, stabbing... All of it. Almost all of that violence, Kernan says, was and still is caused by powerful race-based prison gangs. So the gangs rule in prison? They do. The gangs rule. In an effort to break that rule, California identified gang leaders and enforcers and sent them to Pelican Bay. So the idea was to bring them here and have them in isolation.
1: Have them in isolation and deter their communication.
6: And it worked. So if any, any uh, inmate was validated as a gang member, he could be held here indefinitely. For years or decades?
9: Yes. 24 years, five months, and six days I was there.
6: Clyde Jackson was sent to prison at age 17 for kidnapping, rape, robbery, and attempted murder. But it was gang ties that got him sent to Pelican Bay.
9: Well, I was sent to Pelican Bay, shoe because I was labeled as a validated gang member uh-huh. of the black Gorilla family. The design was complete isolation.
8: One of the first things they said to me was, I am struggling to maintain my sanity and I don't know how to do it.
6: Craig Haney is a psychology professor at UC Santa Cruz whose studies of Pelican Bay shoe inmates have become central to arguments against the widespread use of solitary confinement. So what was the most striking result of your findings in 1992 after that first study?
8: that vast numbers of prisoners were
6: traumatized
8: by the experience. They were suffering, they were living in pain, and many of them were being psychologically damaged by the conditions of their confinement, and and, and at much higher levels than even I anticipated.
9: Your mind becomes diseased, and you start to accept the abnormal as normal.
6: You must know that there are a lot of people who do not care that you're in isolation 5 years, 10 years, 24 years, what does it matter that conditions are bad? Because you've got it coming.
9: Well, there's prison and then there's prison, right? The judge sentenced me to prison. He didn't sentence me he didn't sentence me to an underground prison.
6: But wasn't the logic um, that it was a serious and valid response to a very real and dangerous wave of violence from gang members? There was no reason to believe that that
8: place was going to effectively address the gang problem that was growing in California and witness the fact that it hasn't. Pelican Bay and places like it in California have been in operation now for many, many years, decades. We have the worst prison gang problem in the United States. So it clearly was not a solution.
6: You might expect expect Correction Secretary Scott Kernan to flatly reject that that assertion. um, He doesn't.
1: That was a policy that was intended to save lives and make prisons safer across the system. Um, It was a mistake Um, in retrospect as we look back. um, But
6: you said earlier it worked. It did work. It worked in, in reducing crime in the general prison population. Yes. Why did it not work? It didn't work because of the impact on the offenders. I'm sure you've heard that statement from Justice Anthony Kennedy who says solitary confinement drives men mad. Does it? I think it does. Remember, that's not some human rights campaigner saying that. He runs the prison system. Does that make you feel any better that there's an acknowledgement from the state that it was a mistake?
1: It doesn't make me happy. I've still been tortured. Makes you feel like you've been
8: experimented on, really. There was plenty of evidence early on that this was a failed experiment, that it was hurting people.
6: Pressure for change really began to build in 2011 when Shoe inmates organized a series of hunger strikes to draw attention to their plight. They also filed a class-action lawsuit challenging the use of solitary confinement. Fearing it might lose the suit, the state negotiated a settlement with prisoner plaintiffs in 2015. California agreed to stop holding inmates in solitary for indefinite terms— and to stop sending them to the shoe simply for having gang ties. Now that the settlement has happened and the reforms have taken place, what is the difference in the shoe now
1: versus then? The shoe facility that we are doing this interview on is empty. And we emptied the shoes out.
6: California shoes now hold 80% fewer inmates than just a few years ago. Only people like Aaron Franklin, whom we met earlier, are still sent to the shoe for specific infractions and limited terms.
1: I think across the nation, people are looking at how we house restricted offenders and are making changes to that policy. Ooh.
6: So if Pelican Bay was once a model for the widespread use of solitary confinement, it's now so empty that Scott Kernan is converting shoe pods to minimum security units. So now we can take these off? Yes. Right? Because we're going to. A minimum security unit? Yes. So, I, where there's less fear of being stabbed. Oh, this is very different, wow. All the cell doors are open in the converted pods, and prisoners can move around freely. Did you ever think that would happen?
9: No. No, I thought, uh, you know, I was under the mind that Pelican Bay would be there for an eternity.
6: After his own eternity in the Pelican Bay shoe, 24 years. Clyde Jackson is now in the general population at Solano State Prison near Sacramento. What was it like the first time you were taken out of the shoe and able to experience the environment?
9: Well, Ms. Winfrey, to be honest with you, I was dizzy. it's, It's like being born again.
6: At Solano, Jackson has immersed himself in the rehabilitation programs that are now the focus of California's prison system. The state has gone from lock up to fix-em-up.
9: I'm 54 years old. I'm finally in a position to get my GED. And so you're taking advantage of everything you can. Everything that I can that I missed in the past.
6: Mm -hmm. So tell me, do you have hope now? Yes. There are many who would say, why Does an inmate deserve hope? Because they are here because of a crime that they committed and inevitably took some form of hope away from somebody.
1: Over 90% of these inmates will complete their sentence and they'll come back out into the communities. Do you want somebody with no hope that's involved themselves in criminal activities, doing dope, stabbing people? Or would you want a guy that comes out that has an AA degree, has a substance abuse program, has went domestic violence classes. Um, What would you want as a taxpayer and a citizen of this state?
6: How has your own personal perception of what it means to be an inmate, a prisoner, how has that changed?
1: When I first came in, that person was the enemy. Now, 35 years later, um, I don't view the inmates as my enemy. They're people. They're all coming out to be our neighbors. Why wouldn't we spend the resources and create an environment where when they come out, they're better people than when they got here? I just think it makes all the sense in the world. It's common sense.
6: Clyde Jackson may become part of that 90% of inmates to eventually be released. He has a date with the parole board in 2022. He will be 59 years old and will have been behind bars for more than 40 years.
2: As long as there have been collectors, there have been people trying to cheat them. The world of fine wine is no different. Forgers have made millions of dollars fooling collectors thirsty for rare and interesting trophy wines. With lots of money, big egos, and often no intention of ever drinking the wine, they're an easy target. At first, no one seemed to be an easier mark than Bill Koch, an avid wine collector with deep pockets. He is the sibling of the famous Koch brothers, Charles and David, who are known for their philanthropy and support of conservative causes. But as it turns out, Bill Coke was the wrong guy to mess with. Driven by an obsessive aversion to being cheated and fueled by a billionaire's budget, the other Coke brother has become the country's leading crusader against counterfeit wine. Who are you in this family? Where are your interests? What makes you different than the other brothers or like them?
7: I could, uh, how much time do you have?
2: <laughs> Sixty minutes.
7: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've uh, charted my own way in life. My brother Charles likes to collect money. Uh, my brother David uh, used to like to collect girls until he got married. Uh, and people say, well, what do you collect? I collect everything I can.
2: And that's a whole lot. Coke owns millions of dollars of prime that's real great. estate, yeah including this 45,000-square-foot mansion in Palm Beach, Florida. The house, like the Botero sculptures on the lawn, is busting at the seams. Hundreds of millions of dollars of masterpieces elbowing for wall space. Degas, Monet, Cezanne.
7: My twin brother says that uh, my home here is a museum disguised as a house.
2: Coke is a billionaire whose money comes from his family. His father, Fred Koch, founded the Kansas-based oil and gas conglomerate Coke Industries, now the second wealthiest privately owned business in the country with annual revenues of over $100 billion. Bill Coke was fired from the company after he tried to gain control of it. He sued his brothers, Charles and David, for his share and went on a multi-million dollar spending spree, collecting not just art, but trophies, including the America's Cup in 1992 and a cellar full of the finest and rarest wine in the world. And how many bottles do you think you have in here?
7: Oh, gosh, probably 15,000 or something like that.
2: His finest wine, and those most desired by collectors, are from centuries-old chateaus in the Bordeaux and Burgundy regions of France. Bottles with an interesting backstory fetch especially high prices. Well, Christie's auction house sold one bottle, supposedly owned by founding father Thomas Jefferson, for a record price of more than $156,000.
7: Mr. Forbes. When I saw that Malcolm Forbes, or actually his son, Kip Forbes, bought a bottle of Thomas Jefferson wine, I said, i got to have that. So I went out searching for it, and lo and behold, I found uh, four bottles. 1784 Braun Mouton. Mouton, THJ. Thomas Jefferson. That's right.
2: In 2005, Coke decided to include a photo of one of his prized Jefferson bottles in an exhibit of his collection. Coke asked Brad Goldstein, his private investigator, when you're a billionaire, you have one, to reach out to historians at Thomas Jefferson's home, Monticello.
10: That's one of those phone calls that always (laughs) I'll never forget.
2: (laughs) What happened?
10: I got the curator of the museum on the line, and she said, I have some bad news for you. These bottles have nothing to do with Thomas Jefferson. And I said, "Uh uh-oh. I said, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going to go well.
2: Monticello historians told them Thomas Jefferson didn't have his wine bottles engraved. And this is not his signature. How many bottles of the Thomas Jefferson wine did you purchase?
7: I purchased four bottles. And what
2: did you pay for them?
7: I paid $100,000 per bottle. So $400,000 for fake bottles.
2: Koch dispatched his private investigator, Brad Goldstein, to Germany to track down Hardy Rodenstock, a wine spectator cover boy and collector who claimed to have discovered the Jefferson bottles. Rodenstock wouldn't talk to Brad Goldstein, or 60 Minutes for that matter, but there was someone who was prepared to talk to Koch's private eye about wine forgery a man who said he had crafted fake labels for Hardy Rodenstock for years.
10: I'd bring him pictures, and we would go through, like, going through baseball cards. Which one did you do? And he would pick them out.
2: How many did he do?
10: He did about um, a dozen plates, but that's not how many he printed. (laughs) He printed thousands. (laughs) Thousands. Thousands. He would say, okay, blow up this looped L, and you'll see here, I had a hard time with my with my knife, and I made a nick here, and that's how you're going to be able to detect that on the Lafleur, it's it's a fake. I mean, the little details like that are just like gifts.
2: Rodenstock refused to come to the United States to answer Bill Koch's lawsuit, and Koch won a judgment against him anyway for more than one million dollars. It hasn't been paid.
10: The wines that he was importing into the United States, first of all, he, some of them they never made. <laughs> so that
2: never, never existed. Made,
7: never, never existed.
2: What a bold thing to do.
7: And nobody bothered to check. When I first heard about it, I said, my gosh, uh, I've got to look at my whole wine collection. And then I began to find more and more fake bottles. This is a bottle of chateau Fiennes Rothschild, 1870. And we had a materials expert analyze this, Mm -hmm. and he said the glue behind here is Elmer's glue. And that wasn't made in
6: 1870. Oh my goodness. At $48,000. Bill
2: Koch traced more than half of his 400 fake bottles to this man a wine dealer in Los Angeles named Rudy Kurniawan.
5: But you you know, only the great bourbon
9: is up in France. Mm.
2: Who was dazzling Hollywood with his superior palate and lavish wine tastings.
9: It dances in your mouth to me, you know, it's like, ah, ooh la la, you know.
2: Coke bought this footage of Kurniawan to use against him. He also alerted the U.S. Attorney's Office. Jason Hernandez was assigned to investigate.
10: Rudy was a new money guy that no one really knew where he was from. He was flashy, he liked nice cars, he had uh, you know Hermes suits, he traveled on a (laughs) private jet, and he spent millions of dollars a year on wine.
2: Was he fueling his lifestyle with the money that he was making selling fakes, or did he have more income coming in?
10: It was all from making counterfeit wines. He didn't have a day job. His day job was to work in his kitchen and make $10,000, $20,000 bottles of wine.
2: In 2012, the FBI raided Rudy Kurniawan's home in California, where he was blending high-end wine with cheaper wine and rebottling it behind expensive labels.
10: This was like Santa's workshop. It was like all that was missing was the elves. He had the bottles laid out. He had the labels stacked in currency. This is where he made everything. These wines were made by Rudy Kurniawan In Los Angeles, they're not from France. They're from his kitchen.
2: Chateau Rudy.
10: Chateau Rudy.
2: (laughs) Rudy Karniwan made tens of millions of dollars fooling wealthy buyers. He was convicted and sentenced to prison for 10
7: years. There is a code of silence in this business uh, because, obviously, the faker doesn't want anybody to know that he's making fake wine. The auction house doesn't want to know that. And then... The collector himself generally doesn't want to know it. Or if he finds out, he wants to find a secret way to dump it and get his money back. And that's why you see I was very unique in in, in being the one who said, hmm, I'm going to stand up for it. I'm going to shine a bright light on these fakers.
2: How much money did you spend tracking down who sold you
7: those bottles? I spent uh, over $35 million doing all that.
2: $35 million? Yes, more. Why?
7: Uh, I was a dog on a bone. and <laughs> wasn't going to give up.
2: He sued Christie's, which sold one of the Jefferson bottles. But the court ruled the statute of limitations had expired. Christie's declined to be interviewed for this story. Bill Koch told us even when the wines are genuine, the stories that sell them may not be. The details are often a mystery. In one of his lawsuits, Koch had to contend with this man an expert witness and wine consultant named Gil Lempert Schwartz. Koch's team challenged his credibility in court and suggested we look at a 2015 auction where Lempert Schwartz offered a trove of wines that he said were discovered in a Swedish nobleman's cellar, just the kind of story that can drive prices up. Is it true? Is this story true?
11: Of course it is.
2: I'm going to read from the catalog. You wrote that you discovered a Swedish nobleman's cellar while the early morning mist hovered outside the 19th century manor house. It quickly became apparent that this wasn't any old Swedish wine cellar lurking directly underneath. Did you find that cellar? Of course. What can you tell me about it?
11: Uh, Nothing other than what I used in the description. It was an old family house. It was a cellar that was... Brought to me by a family friend. And, and he was
2: a Swedish nobleman, is what you said?
11: Well, this, 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 was, this is the family uh, that owns the house.
2: Who was that family?
11: I can't disclose who that family was. They were clients of mine. There are binding non disclosure agreements, as are signed with every client. That's why no names will come out. And in the auction business, there are no names.
2: You say in your catalog, in fact, as records show, at one point, the king himself had presented several cases of good French drinking wine to the head of the family as a gift for their fine services. What records are you talking about?
11: The family presented this to me. That was the story they told me. Mm It was not something that I needed to go and check with Swedish government records. I simply listened to a story told to me by the family. Could
2: you ask them and say, hey, 60 Minutes wants to know if this story is true. Would you mind confirming it?
11: No, I will not do that. I will not. Because I don't think it's important.
2: Because there are people in the business saying you whip up fairy tales to sell wine.
7: I disagree with you.
2: You didn't this... weave a tale Why about the seller. Why would I? Because you can make a lot of money.
7: Can you look at this?
2: Validating stories about fine wine is hard, but as a result of Bill Koch's $35 million crusade, it is now easier for buyers in New York, where a lot of fine wine is sold, to sue auction houses that sell fakes. What is it about the fraud element of this that you can't let go? There is something deep there.
7: Well, there is, you know, then I'd have to uh, go to a deep shrink and find out where in my childhood, uh, probably because I had uh, bigger brothers who were always beating up on me, (laughs) faking me, uh, cheating me a little bit. Maybe that's part of it. And so I said I've got to establish a reputation uh, that if you cheat me, I'm going to be tough.
2: It's almost enough to make you want to buy beer. (laughs) Have you hit that point yet?
3: (laughs) No. (laughs) an update on last Sunday's story about DEA whistleblower Joe Ranassisi. In a joint investigation with The Washington Post, 60 Minutes pursued his allegations that the opioid crisis spread unchecked with the help of the drug distribution industry, its lobbyists, Congress, and the revolving door between regulators and the regulated. Since our story ran, President Trump's nominee for drug czar, Congressman Tom Marino, has withdrawn. The law Congressman Marino sponsored, which Joe Renacisi told us has hobbled the DEA's enforcement power, is now the target of a repeal movement by members of the Senate. Now, 50 seasons of 60 minutes. This week, we look back to October 23rd, 1983. Morley Safer interviewed the memorable George Finn, a savant with limited intellectual ability, but an unlimited talent when it came to calculating dates. Years later, George Finn would serve as one of the inspirations for Dustin Hoffman's portrayal of a savant in the movie Rain Man. What day of the week was August 13th, 1911?
5: Uh, Sunday. What day of the week was May 20th,
8: 1921?
9: Friday. Friday. Well, you're
8: remarkable, and it's been a great pleasure to meet you. I'm glad. And what's your name again? Morley.
9: Morley, and I'm glad to meet you. I will remember this day as long as I live.
3: I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Survivor's back, and so is on fire, the only official Survivor Podcast, and we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D.Vayadaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor Podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS
5: News Business Analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast